0: Read God's word in Joshua ten, in which chapter we'll read the first thirty verses. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adonizedak, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah king of Lachish, and unto Deber, king of Iglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Iglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua, to the camp, to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly, and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Mikeda and it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Bethhoron that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah and they died they were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword and spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled, and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them, and stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them, suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua... That Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them. And hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. It came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun, that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees, and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword. And the king thereof he utterly destroyed them and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain. And he did to the king of Makeda as he did unto the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him unto Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered it also and the king thereof into the hand of Israel. And he smote it with the edge of the sword and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain in it but did unto the king thereof. As he did unto the king of Jericho. We're going to stop our reading there. Uh, And partly we do so because that's all that happened that day that lasted two days. And verse 32 indicates that the following battles were fought on the second day. I call your attention to verses 12 through 14. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. If I would ask you children, how many miracles, how many wonderful things are recorded in this passage and especially in our text you would right away say well that one where the sun didn't go down and the moon didn't go down for about a whole day that was a miracle and of course you're right but you notice what the text says in verse 14 there was no day like that before it or after it and then we don't read where the sun and the moon didn't go down for another 24 hours there was no day like it Before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. There is not only the wonder of the sun and the moon holding their courses. There's also this wonder that without the direction or command or forewarning from Jehovah that Joshua was to tell the sun and the moon to stand still, he did it. And the Lord who alone governs the sun and the moon, made them stay. Two miracles. Two miracles in this text by which Jehovah exalts Joshua and makes all Israel know he is their God-appointed leader. Let's back up and get the history right. After crossing the Jordan River, Israel had made some progress in beginning to take significant cities in the Promised Land. Of course, the first city they came to when crossing the Jordan had been Jericho. And when they captured Jericho, by a great wonder, which I don't recount now, they then controlled the lower Jordan River Valley, a narrow strip of land, but several miles long. And eight miles away from Jericho to the north, they made their camp at Gilgal. From Gilgal, they went westward and captured Ai and Bethel. Again, I won't recount the story. But when they captured Ai and Bethel, they captured two cities that were somewhat in the middle of Israel, north and south. And although not large cities, they allowed the Israelites somewhat, as it were, to divide the land in half and to say, we've got to great work to do to the north of us and we've got a great work to do to the south of us but we've got the dividing line marked so that was significant and then there are the Gibeonites the Gibeonites are the next city they'd come to but you remember how the Gibeonites trick the Israelites they come to the Israelites with old clothing worn out and holy with old moldy bread and they say we're just like you Israelites We left a faraway country, and the day we left, our clothes were brand new and the bread was fresh out of the oven. You can see that we also don't belong here. Will you make a league with us? And without asking counsel at the hand of the Lord or the mouth of the Lord, Joshua and the Israelites did that. And that's in the plan and will of God going to be the occasion for the five armies of the south to band together and God to give Israel a significant victory over the majority of the southern kingdoms in a short period of time. It's in the context of that wonderful victory and deliverance that Joshua tells the sun and the moon to stand still. Our text says, is not this written in the book of Jasher, A book, apparently a poetic book, literally known as the book of the righteous, in which the victories of Israel were recounted. But more significantly for us today, this is written in the book of God, in the inspired scriptures. And that reminds us that we have more than just an interesting story. have a reminder of how Jehovah works with a view to the salvation of the church today also today so I call your attention to the text under the theme the day that lasted two days it was first of all Jehovah's doing that's the first wonder the sun and the moon stood still and then secondly we'll notice Jehovah's means that's the words of a man to the sun and the moon to stand still And then thirdly, we'll notice Jehovah's purpose. The sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Kings of the south came against the Gibeonites and decided to war against the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites sent messengers quickly to Gilgal, where the Israelites were encamped. Now that was about 20 miles away as the crow flies. And so here comes a delegation coming quickly and out of breath to Joshua at Gilgal, informing him that the men of Gibeah need his help ASAP. And there is no time to lose. And Joshua and the Israelites have an opportunity to say, Oh, the people who tricked us suddenly need our help. And we made a vow to them that we should never have made to start with. We could get out of our vow by telling them no. That's not how God's people act. When God's people, the righteous, make a promise, they keep their promise. When it's to our disadvantage to keep the promise, we keep the promise. And so Joshua and the men of Israel travel through the night, 20 miles as the crow flies, which means it's more than just 20 miles, and uphill, the, the the uh, scriptures even said that they went up. They're at the Jordan River Valley. They have to go up into the mountains and they're taking their ammunition and, and their military equipment with them. This is a significant doing in itself. By time the sun rises the next morning, the Israelites are ready to face the enemy and the enemy does not even know that they have arrived. The enemy is greater in number than the men of Gibeah and the men of Israel. The enemy also knows the lay of the land, which the men of Israel do not. And you might say this is still not a match. The kings of the south are going to win this war, hands down. But because the Lord fought for Israel, that's not how it went. In the first place, the Lord discomfited the five kings of the south, and that means he caused them to turn on each other. Read of other times in the Old Testament when God did that. An enemy that's gathered ready to fight against Israel and suddenly there's a rumor that Israel's attacking them and they completely lose their wits and they start killing members of their own army thinking that they're killing an Israelite. That's what the Lord does here. That's the idea of discomfited them. And in the second place, The Lord sent hailstones, which, as we read, destroyed even more of them than the Israelites slew with the sword. So, the enemy is fleeing. And Joshua says to his men, pursue before they get back to their fenced cities. Kill them. And it's as the Israelites are chasing the enemy that that Joshua says to the son Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou move in the valley of Agilon. There are some who suggest it must have been getting late in the day. Twilight is about to come. And so in the remaining hours in the twilight that remains, Joshua says, there's a lot of work to do. I'm going to tell the sun to stand still. But the text suggests, if you understand it correctly that it was not at all near evening, it was probably not even yet the noon of the day. For the sun stood still in the midst of heaven. And then, sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, which was to the east, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon, which was to the west. If it is not noon, straight noon, then it was noon. In the new. And yet Joshua understands, indeed, that there is so much work to be done in killing the armies of the south that he says to the sun, Stand still. And during that day, which lasted two days, as I indicated earlier, everything that's recorded through verse 30 takes place. A victory over the army at large and over the city of Makeda and over the city of Libna, and the killing of the five kings of the five southern kingdoms. All of that, I say, and particularly the standing still of the sun and moon, was Jehovah's doing. On the one hand, the believer doesn't question that. Every human understands that no mere human can tell the sun and the moon what to do. Every farmer, if he could tell the sun and the moon what to do and think that the sun and moon would listen, would tell the sun about seed time and about harvest stand still, let me get my work done. But every farmer understands he can't, and if he tried, it wouldn't make a difference. It was Jehovah's doing. But do you understand that we have to emphasize and defend this against unbelieving denials? There are scoffers who say, How unscientific is this presentation? The sun stood still? We all know that the sun stands still anyway. It's the earth that's revolving around the sun. You can't even trust the scriptures. To give you true science. And the believer says. But that's not what the scriptures try to do anyway. The scriptures are true to science. Rightly understood. But their purpose is to present history from the viewpoint of man. With two feet planted on the earth looking up. We all speak of the sun. Rising and the sun setting. So, another unbeliever, he might pretend he's a believer and say that in some sense he's a Christian, says, Well, it's too amazing. It's just that so much happened that day that it seemed like two days. And another says, Well, the book of Jasher is a poetic book. All of this is poetry. When you read the English poets, when you read the, um, the uh, American poets, you see them saying things that can't literally be true. They take what we call poetic license, and that's what's happening here. It doesn't matter which of those three options you might buy into. You are undermining that this was a work Jehovah did, as the scriptures say, he did it. Jehovah inspired the scriptures to tell us what Jehovah did. And now in the rest of my first point I'm going to tell you why it matters. It matters because this reveals Jehovah to you and to me. The Jehovah that we worship and adore. It reveals him in three ways. It reveals him first of all in his power, his omnipotent, un limited power over the sun and the moon and the heavens and the creation. Of course, Jehovah has this power. This is the Jehovah who called the sun and the moon and stars when they were not. And his mere word of calling them made them appear. That's his power. It doesn't take his strong arms. Those are symbols of his power. It's his word gently spoken that accomplishes his will. And so it points us to the power of Jehovah God as he manifested in Jesus Christ. Jesus when he came to earth showed himself through doing many miracles to be God not just a very strong man, not just a very strong man who had God's approval and was on God's side but he is and was God And think of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the wind and the waves, stilling the storm. This is the power of our God. If this is the power of our God as he shows himself in Jesus Christ, he has the power to destroy the forces of sin in your life, in my life, in behalf of the church in preparing to bring us to glory. What an awesome power. And we worship this God. It's that same God who shows his power in Jesus Christ, who will come again on the clouds of heaven one day and cause the stars to fall from the heavens, the moon to cease and the sun to cease its shining, and say, I don't need you anymore. It's not just that I didn't want you to shine for two days. You don't need to shine at all In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a light that proceeds from God himself. I don't need creatures. This God has power. Oh, adore him. Adore him, beloved, for his power. The second place, what this tells us about Jehovah God is that he uses his power in behalf of the church. He wasn't saying to the five kings, boy, that's unfair of Israel to chase you. I'm going to make the sun stand still, the moon stand still, so you can run away. He wasn't defending or working to preserve the enemies of Israel. It was for his covenant people whom he loved. He brought Israel out of Egypt. He promised in Abraham to give her the promised land, the land of Canaan. He's fulfilling his promise as she comes into that promised land. And he has in mind to give her both the earthly picture, Canaan, and the heavenly reality that you and I will share. Deny that the Lord did this. Call it unscientific. Call it poetic. Call it an exaggeration. And you're questioning and undermining Jehovah's love for his church, according to which he does all things with a view to our salvation. And in the third place, that this is Jehovah's doing underscores his grace. The sinner wants to hear of the grace of God. You know, another Wrong approach some take to the history of the Old Testament including that set forth in our text. Instead of looking at the grace of God for sinners who don't deserve this salvation, they look at the bloodshed. And they say that's your God? Your God's an angry God? Your God just lets people go war against others. He tells them to go war. You like that kind of a God? Child of God says you're missing something to a person who talks like that. Child of God says you're missing something. My God is a righteous God. Let's start there. He's righteous. His righteousness, he hates sin. His hatred of sin, he could destroy every single sinner. Remember, young people, the amazing thing about Jehovah is not that some go to hell. That's what some can't wrap their mind around, that he'd send some to hell. That's not the amazing thing about Jehovah. We all deserve hell. The amazing thing is that he saves some. That's what's coming out here. Israel is no better than the enemy. She doesn't deserve to be saved. And so it's God's grace to her that he fights in her behalf. But as for the enemy, he shows himself to be righteous and just. And now you and I can see how readily that brings us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was war too. That was the doing of Jehovah the three hours of darkness at Calvary when instead of staying up and shining for almost 48 hours the sun at high noon simply didn't shine that was the power of Jehovah showing his just and righteous wrath against sin the wrath against your sin and mine Poured out on and born by Jesus Christ our Lord. So that. His justice being satisfied. He could love you. And love me. And show us undeserved grace. And mercy. His power. His covenant relationship with Israel. And his undeserved. Unmerited Faithful love and grace for his people. But you sell it all if you deny that Jehovah actually, historically, did this. The means of Jehovah to accomplish this were the words of Joshua. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still, and thou moon. We read, first of all, that Joshua spake to the Lord, and second, that he commanded the sun and the moon. There are two ways to explain that, two both plausible and possible ways. One is to say that first Joshua prayed, Then he commanded the sun and the moon. And that's how the text presents itself. Joshua spake to the Lord, and he commands the sun and the moon. He prays first. He realizes it's not in his own power to do this. But a second way, and it really depends on a Hebrew translation, a second way is to say that Joshua spake for the Lord in the Lord's behalf and in the Lord's authority. And either way you take it, you have Joshua understanding that he is Jehovah's appointed leader of Israel. That even as the appointed leader, he can't just do what he wants. He can't just command the creation to do whatever he wants it to do that only if this is going to be to the glory of God and in accordance with the will of God will this happen. He understands that. When he speaks, he speaks as one who has authority from Jehovah to do so. And yet, he's a mere man. As far as men are concerned, there's no reason, humanly speaking, Why one man should have the power or authority another man doesn't. Why God should single some out in the church and say, in keeping now with Dutch reform practice, there's going to be one man among you who walks through the door at 9.30 in the morning and at 6 o'clock at night, and instead of sitting in the pews with you, he's going to stand up here. There's going to be ten or so other men in your midst who, although they're going to sit with you during the worship service, are going to come in with that man who stands up here. And during the week, at times, they're going to meet in their meetings. And there's times when they're going to come and meet with you in meetings with you. There's no reason, humanly speaking, why there should be men like that. The Lord says, but don't look at things, so humanly speaking, from Jehovah's viewpoint and in carrying out Jehovah's purpose. There is every reason why he would raise up mere men, ourselves sinners, to have positions of leadership and authority in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the first lesson that Jehovah is teaching Israel here. Joshua is your leader. Now this isn't the first time the Israelites had become aware of that. As soon as Moses died, Joshua took up the lead. And even before Moses died, it was understood that Joshua would be his successor. They've crossed the Jordan River with Joshua as their leader. Fought the battle against Jericho. Fought the battle against ai and Bethel with Joshua as their leader, but Jehovah is saying to them, as it were, "Do not forget, follow your God-appointed leader." Already, when Moses was alive, there were some in Israel saying, "Moses, you think you're too too important?" There's even a time when it was Miriam and. Aaron, who said that very thing to him. And if you'll recall the history of the wilderness wanderings, not once did it turn out well when some Israelite said, Moses, you think you're too important. Not once. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. That was Jehovah's doing too. Miriam. And Aaron are rebuked and chastised. And yet, there might just might have been some in Israel who said, All right, we needed Moses. But we don't need government all the time. It doesn't need to be an abiding institution. Once in a while here, once in a while there maybe, but not always. And this is a prime time to insist on it, Joshua. You need to lead our host for a while. As soon as we've conquered the land, we don't need a leader anymore. And Jehovah is saying to the Israelites... you try telling the sun and the moon to stand still once. You see if I listen to you. I listen to Joshua. You follow Joshua. Of course, the application to our office bearers does not mean to leave the impression in the least that an elder, a pastor, or a minister, or even a professor can do some amazing miracle the way Joshua did. We cannot. You understand why the church needs leaders? Or if you say, No, I don't understand, do you nevertheless understand that it is the will of God to raise up leaders? And do you bow? No, do you submit yourselves to them? We live in a day and age of anarchy. It's all around us in the news, all around us in society, and it fills, or infiltrates anyway, the church of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to say, I know the doctrines of sovereign grace, I love the doctrines of sovereign grace, but I have something against the elders and the deacons and the ministers in my church and in classes west and in the denomination. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to do that? When the scriptures make plain that Jehovah gives his church office bears and works through them. That, first of all, is the point of Jehovah hearkening to Joshua. But in the second place, Joshua is, in our text, a prominent type of the second Joshua. You children maybe have been told before... The word Joshua is a Hebrew word. We're in the Old Testament. That was written in the Hebrew language. The word means Jehovah Salvation. Now you go into the New Testament. It's written in the Greek language. And there's another word that means Jehovah Salvation. It's the word Jesus. Joshua, the Old Testament man, is a type and picture of Jesus, the New Testament Savior And the Savior of God's people everywhere. And so again, the text reminds us of what God does in Jesus Christ. Deny that it's God's will that He give us pastors, elders, and deacons, and that He rules the church through them. And you deny the need for Jesus Christ. Maybe not in dying on the cross, but in being raised and exalted to the right hand of God, in governing the whole world and creation. And in governing his church, you say, I don't need the government of Jesus. The church could take care of itself on its own. Oh, no. The church would destroy itself if left to itself. And so we're pointed to Jesus Christ. This is not just the Jesus now who governs history in some general way. This is the Jesus Christ with the right hand of God as the Lord of creation might decide later this year to send you, a hailstorm storm. Might decide later this year to send you a drought. Might decide to send you later this year sufficient rain at the exact right time and give you a bumper crop. That's the Lord Jesus Christ as he governs history and then that same Lord who says to his church, I do it all for you I love you. And what I do for you now isn't just to make your earthly life comfortable and make you healthy and wealthy and say what a great life you have here in America, but it's to remind you that there's another day coming and to get you ready for that day. The Savior of the church. And so it's that Jesus Christ who's going to come And not only, as I said already, remove the heavens, that is, the sun, moon, and stars, but it's going to bring fire to this world, destroy it, and out of it make a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When that Jesus Christ speaks, Jehovah hearkens. That, Jesus Christ says, place in heaven is ready for that person. And through whatever means, I'm going to take his soul to heaven. Jehovah listens. Jesus Christ says, that person for whom I died is living an ungodly and an unthankful life, and through a chastisement that I send, a grievous chastisement, I'm going to bring him to repentance. Jehovah listens. Because, of course, what Jesus Christ says is not, first of all, Jesus Christ's own desire, but it is the will of Jehovah God, and Jesus Christ carries it out. What amazing sovereign power our Savior has. Now, what was Jehovah's purpose in all of this? I'm going to speak first of his purpose for Israel and second of his purpose for us. And for Israel, it was to give Israel a decisive victory over the kingdoms of the south. When I say decisive, I don't mean that in one day they did all the fighting they ever had to do. There was more to be done the second day. There would be more to be done even when the tribes inherited their own lands. And they were told, now there are still some heathen, some Canaanites living in your territory. Each one of you has to go fight against them and root them out. Until the time of David, there would be Canaanites that needed to be destroyed. No, it wasn't a complete victory in that there wasn't a single enemy left. But it was a decisive victory from this victory. Israel knew she'd get the promised land. Now this is true in three ways. In the first place, the power of the kingdoms of the south is broken. The kingdoms exist yet. There are people yet that are in those fenced cities of those kingdoms, but their power is broken. The armies are diminished. The soldiers are destroyed by hail and by sword. The hindmost have been killed by the Israelites as they pursued those who fled. The five kings have been killed. This army cannot regroup. There are times when an army sees that things aren't going well in its war, in its battle, and so it's captains call for a retreat. And the retreat is not a surrender. The retreat is not an admission of failure. The retreat is to regroup and coordinate efforts again And plan another surprise attack and in that way destroy the enemy. These armies aren't able to do that. It wasn't a complete, but it was a decisive victory. In the second place, the decisiveness of this victory is seen in that the Lord had a purpose for the Canaanites as well as the Israelites. That's what they forget who look at the God of Israel as being a bloodthirsty God, a God who delights in war, a God who is not a very kind God. They forget the Lord has a purpose for the Canaanites. They have filled up the cup of iniquity, they have shown themselves to be the sons not just of Ham, the son of Noah, but of Canaan, the son of Ham, the son of Noah who was himself a wicked man. They have shown themselves already in the Sodomites, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, to be men wholly given over to wickedness. And though that was hundreds of years ago, 400 or more years ago, yet some others of their relatives are alive yet in Canaan, and they have carried out all the abominations a man could imagine. And Jehovah says that's enough are so wicked you're going to be destroyed. The church is reminded that one reason why we're given the victory not because we deserved it but because it was the Lord's will through giving us the victory to show his just punishment of the wicked and that's underscored here when the bodies of the five kings are hanged on trees until the evening. You remember the significance from Deuteronomy? Man who's hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Jesus Christ hung there on your behalf and mine. These five hung there to show that all their kingdoms would be destroyed Jesus Christ didn't die for them. They must bear the wrath of God themselves. Then the third way or the third thing to say in underscoring that this is a complete rather a decisive victory is that Jehovah is saying to Israel now don't worry, there's more to do in the south and then there's the whole north yet you haven't even begun in the north don't worry I'll give you the land. This was the largest show of human force Israel has seen. The battles at Jericho, at Bethel, and at Ai are so unusual in the way they were fought. This one is much more traditional for its day. There are men with swords. And the men are many. The army, the opposing army is many. And Israel might say at this point now... Can we have the victory? And Jehovah says. I'm with you. I fight for you. Don't think you can in your own strength. But go on in mine. So. A decisive victory for Israel. That reminds her that she will have more. And more. Of these. And that has to do the purpose of God for us. For you see, we are in a war. How often do you think of that? How conscious are you? In a war against the lie, against unbelief, against ungodliness, there's a war out there. There's a battlefield in here. Jesus Christ is enthroned in the hearts of his people. But Satan wants to be rid of that Christ. And take you and I back. And get us under his own sway. That our old man is an ally of Satan. Satan. And we look at sin and we know that thou shalt not of the law of God. But we say it's so enticing. It probably won't hurt if I do it once. And we do it once. And we find we've been wounded. We haven't fought the battles of our Lord as he told us to fight. There is a great battle raging today. And it's a whole lot closer to you and to me than we usually realize, and the danger of our falling, if left to our own strength, is real. And so the great practical lesson, which is why this is written both in the book of Jasher and in the book of the Scriptures, is to say to you and to me, fight that battle. And remember it's the Lord's battle fight it in the strength he gives. Isn't that encouraging? When you look at the spiritual enemies of the church, I think it's up to us, the church, to fight them. It'd be one thing if they were human enemies exclusively How do you fight Satan? He's a spirit. He's more powerful than you and me. He knows a lot more than I do about the the dangerous terrain in which I'm fighting. He knows even better than I about the susceptibleness of my own heart to temptation. How do you fight him and have the victory? I can't. Isn't it comforting to hear that the Lord fought for Israel. That's the word that comes to you and to me tonight. It is the Lord's battle against the Lord's enemies using the Lord's means, which is the word of God and the sword of the Spirit, to accomplish the Lord's purpose. Now I'm ready to go again. Now I'll resist the devil and the grace God gives. Now I'm afraid no longer. There's a warning, a caution. It is so easy for us humans to think that whatever battle we're engaged in, when we hear a sermon like this, when we hear about the battles of old and how the people fought and the Lord gave them the victory, it becomes so easy for us to say, Oh, I. I, I actually do understand. I have a battle too. I have a battle against that person. I have a battle against that, that idea. I'm not talking about unbelief. now. an ungodliness it might be an idea in the sphere of the covenant. And it becomes so easy us to say, the Lord is on my side in that battle. So here's the caution. Don't think that with regard to your personal battles, some of which manifest how alive the old man is in us, that the Lord will be on your side. But when you are sure that you are on the Lord's side, you can have the confidence that he will give you the victory. And why can you? Because in principle, the victory is already won. For that day to which I've referred, not the day that lasted two days, but the day that was cut, short at high noon, when for three hours there was no sun shining, that day was a battle. And in that day, our Lord and Savior defeated the powers of Satan and sin and evil and earned for you and for me the right to be called the people of God and live in God's kingdom. The stamp of approval and the evidence that he did that was that the third day he rose again. And now he lives and dwells in his church and in our hearts. So go on in the fight. Resolve to be valiant in the battle. Understand that in your own strength you will not win. But seeking his strength, we will. Not me, not you singular. We, the church of Jesus Christ. And in the day when that victory is given to us finally and fully, the sun will not shine anymore, but there will be light. The day in which the heavenly Canaan is fully come, in which we are brought to live with God forever, and the glory of God himself is the light In which we live, a light that never sets and never turns to darkness. In that hope, fight. Amen. Father, which art in heaven, equip us for this battle which we cannot fight in our own strength. battle against sin first of all in our own hearts father keep us from looking outside of ourselves to find the battle as if forgetting that the battle is within when we fight it first in our own hearts then we'll be prepared to fight it also when we see the devil and the enemies outside of us hear us now for jesus sake amen